Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Hola, hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. And today, my guest is Rebecca Contreras. Hola, Rebecca. How are you? Hola, mucho gusto, Jessica. Estar aquí contigo. Oh, I am good. I am excited to talk to you. You are an author, a philanthropist, president and CEO of your own company, and and we get to talk about all of the things. But before we get into the chisme, we always start with the wine. (laughs) So tell me what kind of wine you're drinking today. So I am in Austin, Texas, and a lot of people don't know this, but we have some great wineries here in the surrounding area. Of course, we've got Fredericksburg down the road. I am drinking a Sauvignon Blanc, which is one of my favorites from the Dripping Springs Winery right outside of Austin. And it's light, it's crisp, it's perfect for the beginning of spring. Nice. You know that there is actually one. I First of all, I did live in Texas for about 15 years. I lived in Dallas. But there is one Latino-owned winery in the area. Oh, wow. Uh, the He's uh, Argentinian, is the the gentleman and his wife. And I'm looking, I'm actually going to look right now on um, the directory that we created to tell you the name of it. It is in Fredericksburg and it's called Santa Maria Cellars. Oh, perfect. I'm going to have to visit next time I'm there. I think I've, I don't know if I've reached out to them or not, but tell them that you got it from the Wine and Cheese Made podcast of because <laughs> we're the first directory of all Latino-owned wine brands based in the U.S. So oh, got to nice. plug that and that's on the website. Love but it. I'm actually drinking another Latino-owned brand called Patia Wines and it is a 2019 Pinot Noir. Mm. And I literally just, this is the first glass that I've poured from that bottle. Love oh, it. It smells very earthy. I smell cloves in this one. Mm. Are you a red wine drinker? I am an all wine drinker. Okay. <laughs> as long as it's not too sweet. And I don't yeah. like New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs because it's too grapefruit forward. Yeah. So, well, salud. Let me see. Salud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Love it. Oh, oh, that's good. You know what? I will say this. A lot of these small wineries, they don't have the capacity to pump out so much wine that they are in stores nationwide. So oftentimes a lot of these small wineries, 
I, oh, I just feel like I've not had a bad batch yet. There's some I prefer more than others, of course, but I haven't out of all of these wineries, I haven't had a bad wine yet because I think there's just something to be said when you have a limited quantity and the care that you take of the wine and the product that comes from that. So well, I have a little bit of advantage I have to tell you about. This is a little cheese man. So my brother, Daniel Hernandez and Christine Hernandez, they are the owners of First Crush Tastings here in Texas. They specialize in wine, wine tastings. And he will tell you, I every time I'm looking for a good wine, I always call him and say, what's the good wine? And he loves the small niche companies that do custom wine because the wine is just so much richer. And it just, to me, it has a different uh, feel when you drink it in terms of knowing you're supporting small business, but also they produce really good quality wines. So he and his wife are both entrepreneurs and they're in the wine business as well. Oh, I love that. I love, it's so true though. There is such a difference when it comes to these smaller, these smaller wineries. Well, let me read your bio, Rebecca, because my goodness, <laughs> Whew. reading, and I'm going to be honest, like I didn't get to read everything in the book I was going through because it's been a crazy, oh my gosh, the last couple of weeks have been so crazy. But even that, I was like, oh my gosh, writing stuff down. Oh my gosh, writing stuff down. Because like I said, you have lived like 50 lives. So let me read your bio and then we'll get into the cheese man. Uh, Rebecca Contreras is the author of Lost Girl, From Hood to the White House to Millionaire Entrepreneur, which recounts her journey from becoming a welfare-dependent teenage mother to advising a sitting president to driving a successful 100-person company. She started her 15-year service in government in a welfare-to-work program for Texas icon Ann Richards and achieved tremendous heights in her success. For far more, excuse me, than a rags-to-riches story, Lost Girl presents Contreras' self-reflection of how she first survived in El Paso and endured the hardships of the life that she was born into and later overcame obstacle after obstacle through self-determination, perseverance, faith, and a few helping hands. Now, if that bio is not right on target, when you, (laughs) when I don't know what would be, holy moly. So let's just start from the beginning because your mom was a drug addict, a prostitute, a stripper, <laughs> and you were born of a bet, basically, right. of your mom betting somebody else that she could get the bisexual co-owner of a strip club to sleep with her. And she did. And you and your twin brother, Earl, were the products of that. I don't even know what kind of question to even ask when that is how (laughs) your life started. And you didn't even find this out till you're 18. So I got to read a lot of that, but without giving everything away, because obviously you want people to read your book and everything like that. But how do you, when you go through all of the things that you went through, how do you look back at that time in your life and go, holy crap. (laughs) Like, I, I don't even, like I said, it's just like, There's so many questions I want to ask, but then I'm getting into all of the nitty gritty stuff in your book and I don't want to do that. So can you kind of, without giving everything away, like tell us about that time in your life? 
Yeah. So, you know, um, Jessica, my story is no different than the American story. It's, you know, there's a lot of people, especially in our Hispanic community, we would just grow up in a lot of dysfunction. I did, I did an, uh, an event in El Paso recently with about 600 Latinas. And I said, how many here have jacked up families and everybody raises their hand? And I said, and those of you that don't, you're lying because you should be raising your hand. <laughs> and so, you know, but we, we're a rich community. We love our, our people. We love each other. Sometimes we cover for each other's mess, right? My mother was no different. She was a single mom. And, and when she had us, she was a drug addict. She got involved in drugs very young. So there's four of us um, and we all have different fathers. Um, none of us knew our fathers. My twin brother and I had the same dad, obviously, but I always joke with um, our audience that um, that I talked to that, you know, my, my dad was from Yugoslavia, so he was white. My mom's Latina. My brother's dad was a, a Mexican and my sister's dad was black. So we just needed Asian to complete the circle of diversity in our family. <laughs> But, you know, mom had a lot of issues. And so when you grow up in that environment as a young girl, as a teenager, and you go through not only emotional poverty, but physical poverty and, you know, abuse and all the junk that comes with dysfunction in and out of project houses, it really does a number on your head. And at a very young age, I had to, when I became a Latina statistic, teenage, pregnant, high school dropout mom at 17, I had to put a stake in the ground in, in, in my own life and say, what the hell? Like, literally, I don't want to be on welfare anymore. I don't want my daughter to grow up without a father. Her father was a, I call him the sperm donor baby daddy and the, his whole story of how he almost killed me is in the book. But, you know, I was in this mess of a situation and I had to make decisions for my daughter, for myself. And she was a little angel that, um, you know, came into my life way too young, but she was the, really the catalyst that really drove me to really change and embrace my own transformation and change the generational cycle for my own life. And, yeah. you know, I always tell young girls and, and people in our community in general, look, we all go through crap, right? Everybody deals with loss and trauma and pain and abuse and divorce and whatever trauma you're dealing with. But at some point you have to kind of put your big girl pants on and say, enough is enough. Like I am not going to be a product of my environment. And I did that at age 19, Jessica, and it changed my life. I had a, a, an encounter with God and an encounter with mentors and, and really got myself around a lot of people that believed in me and wanted to help me and pay it forward to say, hey, you know, go back to school, like get your life together. You have potential. I had never heard that in my life. And yeah. so I had a lot of good people. I'm a product of the of the good relationships that came around me early on in my young adult life. And so my story is all in Lost Girl. But, you know, it's important for us to embrace our own accountability for our mess, but also embrace our transformation and own the issues of our family and put that stick in the ground to say, I'm going to go get help. I'm going to yeah. get counseling. I'm going to stop, you know, interfacing with that dysfunctional, you know, drug dealer, family member that I have, whatever situation you're in, you got to put that stake in the ground and change it for yourself. Well, I want to go kind of back to a time when you were talking about your mom being in and out of your life, because I feel like we turn to different things to find solace. So what was that thing that you turned to when you had those times of your mom coming in and out of your life? Because some people go to school, some people go to church. You didn't go to church at that time. That time, you no. didn't. You. Some people have somebody that they can go to. Did you have or so? So mine was my grandmother living in pain. My grandmother Jessica, who literally is my hero. This woman was a Latina. She didn't have any education. She she spoke a little bit of English, mostly Spanish. And she really was the hardest working woman I've ever met. She's my hero. She came around us um, when we were abandoned. She took us in and kept us from the foster system. But she was an amazing person. She was a little glimpse of hope for me. 
But, you know, unfortunately, when I was a child and a, and a young preteen and teenager, and I talk about how I got involved in drugs too, cycle repeats the cycle, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I kind of got into my shell and, and, and just got into this bubble of things are not real and really dealt with a lot of mental trauma. And that's why I spiraled out of control between the age of 13 and 19. And it wasn't until I was 19 that I had that kind of stake in the ground with my daughter who, who had been taken away from me. And I really wanted to be her mom and I wanted to give, give her a life and I wanted to get off the drugs and I wanted to go back to school. And, and that's when I got around some uh, two or three really important people in my church community that, that embraced me and said, hey, we're going to help you. But before then, it was very difficult. I, I will say I didn't do it by myself. It's not like I had an epiphany all of a sudden and said, oh, geez, I'm going to change. It was a process for me of about three or four years of spiraling out of control and really bad decisions and and almost near-death encounters that really caught me to shake up and say, what the hell? Like, I need to change my life, you know, for the sake of that daughter. Yeah. I mean, I know that you talk about when your mom finally comes back into your life, it was somebody you didn't even recognize. Right. And she was part of the Pentecostal church. A lot of Latinos, I think, can relate to that being part of the, I was not part of the Pentecostal church, but I feel like there's a lot of, I have a lot of friends who were, who grew up and who very much resent that. And they definitely do the opposite. Like they became very wild. They became, because it was, there was so much restriction within that religion. And you, and you talk about all of those things. Extremism, right? Yeah. Yeah, You went from one extreme or your mom went from one extreme to the other. And like you say, you talk about being pregnant at 17 and you refer to the father of your child as sperm donor. That's how I refer to my quote unquote sperm. Do- <laughs> I call him my sperm donor, right? I have a yeah, dad yeah. and I have a sperm donor because, and you're so like raw in what you share. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so needed sometimes because we always want to polish our life. We yeah. always want to polish the things that we go through or we don't want to share it. And I kind of share like, little bits and pieces throughout the thing, because I like being the behind the scenes person, right? Which sounds very, very weird being that I have a podcast. I'm super extroverted. I could, I get my energy from people. I love being around people, but I don't necessarily like sharing my whole life with people. Yeah. But I find that when we do share the things that we don't think we're supposed to, those are the most powerful moments. And I feel like that's what your entire book is, is just like one after the other, after the other. And you're just like, what? And you want to just keep going because you're like, no, that didn't happen. What? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was very strategic. I call it Rebecca in the raw. And Hey, listen, I poured my soul out there and I, I pretty much unveiled the curtain of my mess, but I also unveiled the curtain of my rise. And I said, here's how I did it. Because you know, when, when I was part of the Bush administration and I went through the White House, I tell my story in there. I had to go through top secret clearance and I almost didn't make that because of my, my dysfunctional past. But that was like a miracle moment for me. And I decided very, very early on, probably about 10 years ago, um, I was in my 40s. I was hiding my past in the past. But, you know, there's a lot of lack of transparency right now. And I think the American people in general want authenticity and transparency. And who am I to say, oh, I'm going to hide all my background in my mess when it's what happened to me that made me the woman I am today? I'm not saying I wouldn't go back and, and change stupid decisions that I made. 
But all of the bad stuff that happened to me helped shape the character of who I am today. And it's the reason that I'm dedicated to giving back to the Latino community through my nonprofit. It's why I invest in girls, little Rebecca's that are out there like me, because it's what shaped me. So I believe everything has a purpose and a reason. It doesn't mean that we need to continue to make really bad mistakes, but it means that we need to learn from that and do what I call fail forward and mm-hmm. say, okay. Now, what am I going to do? How am I going to change this? And, I, and for me, it's about transparency and sharing my story with the world, because I believe there are many people out there that have similar dysfunction in their family or their home and themselves. And we don't need to be ashamed of it. Hey, as long as we move forward and change and we say we're going to embrace our crap, so to speak, and we're going to fix ourselves to move forward, whether it's through counseling, whether it's through making better choices. And so I chose to unveil the rawness of my story for a purpose, very strategic purpose. Oh, absolutely. When you talk about all of these things, and I know you talk eventually about your daughter, but when was the first hope of quote unquote, I guess I would just say, use the word escape that things could get better because, you know, I feel like, especially when you're going through this time, you were searching for something, but you were searching, you know, I think many of us, and I include myself in this is where we're kind of lost and we're searching for something somewhere. We don't know where it is. So we go out partying and so we go drink. And so we do this. And so we do that. But what was that first hope? Because obviously you make a decision, but there has to be a hope before that. Do you have any idea of yeah, what that so, first so I'll tell was? you when, when I I didn't really know that I could ever get off of welfare. It's all my mother knew. It's all their her family knew. We lived in poverty our whole our whole generational thing, and and never really knew I could have a husband. I've been married now thirty two years to a wonderful man who adopted my daughter, and I tell the story in there of how we met and how he protected me from death, but. I remember, Jessica, when I entered into that welfare to work program as a single mom and I met Ann Richards and I started working for her. She's um, she was the state treasurer at the time. It's the first time I ever saw a woman in power in my home. Women were did not have a voice. I came from a very traditional, you know, old school. I call Montana type Latino that my grandfather was very strict and very, you know, chauvinistic in his operation. And, you know, it was the first time I saw a glimmer of hope that, hey, not only can I get off of welfare through this program, but I can be that woman. I can have influence. I actually can be a leader. I don't belong barefoot pregnant and, you know, just working, you know, to barely survive and scratch through life. And it was kind of a glimmer for me and and looking at working for Anne and then working for another powerful woman by the name of Kay Billy Hutchison and then George W. It just opened up my world of these people that had made it in life. And maybe if I applied myself and worked hard and went back to school and got around the right people, I can also ascend and be a woman of influence. And so for me, it was that glimmer of that first job in 1989, fresh off the streets, fresh off the addiction, you know, moved out back in with my mom and and tried to get my my daughter back because she had taken my daughter away from me. Uh, I didn't have her for the first year. And so it was that first glimmer, but I saw a woman in power. And I went, oh my God, she's a woman and she's amazing. And that was kind of my glimmer. I love that because a lot of times it's hard to see something. If It's hard to imagine being something if you can't see it, right? And that's why having women, women of color, and yeah. obviously Ann Richards is a white woman, but you had never even seen a woman in power. So even no. seeing that, it put something in your mind. Going through, how did you decide to apply for, like, how did you even hear about this program, right? I feel like you're 
and I don't necessarily want to get into politics, but I do want to ask, like, I do feel like this welfare to work program, you're an example of what can be done. And I feel like a lot of politicians have kind of lost that vision, right? That's a visionary program to be able to, to do that. How did you find out about that program and what made you say, I can do this. I'm going to apply. I'm going to do this. So it was someone in my church and I, you know, I was a dropout and I, I, I couldn't even get, I was waiting tables and, you know, one again was on welfare. And uh, I had my husband and I just started to become friends. We were, he's 10 years older than me. And he was in that same church and we started doing gang outreach, outreach to the gangs, the guys that I grew up with in East Austin and doing school assemblies, talking about anti-green gang, anti-drug and trying to really encourage kids to stay off drugs. And um, somebody in my path said, hey, you should think about going back to school. And I just got I literally just did the research and said, OK, I'm going to find out what what's in Austin where I can get off of welfare. And somebody referred me to this Job Training Partnership Act, which was funded through a short-term grant. And it was specifically for moms trying to get off of welfare. And the state of Texas would pay you for six weeks to get your GED. They train you in in a skill. I chose secretary training and that's where I landed. I became Anne's receptionist at the state treasury. But here's the deal. It was just that entry point to become a temp. And then I had to do the hard work to get a permanent job. And Mm -hmm. I worked my butt off. I mean, I you know, copied, I did whatever special projects I was asked. I never said no. I I volunteered for special projects. I took some communication classes because I had, you know, East Side slang, I called it. I couldn't communicate. I learned how to communicate. I started dressing and looking like other women in the office. I went to Goodwill, changed my wardrobe and bought a bunch of new clothes at Goodwill. I started to really take the bull by the horns for my own life and just walking it out. And you know, I worked my way all the way up in 12 years to become the director of the entire state of Texas Human Resources Office working for George W. But it was making those deliberate choices every year I would set goals. And at the same time, I married my husband within two years of rehabilitating myself. We got married. I was 21 at the time. And you know, he's a visionary. And he just started telling me, you can do this. Like, don't be afraid of taking that management job or don't be afraid of taking that class. You can do this. I believe in you. So having a cheerleader on my side was really important. And David was a big cheerleader for me. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more Wine and Cheese Man. Have you heard about the hottest new arrival at Ulta Beauty? Fenty Beauty by Rihanna is now at Ulta Beauty. Learn how to achieve the now coveted Fenty face and this game-changing glow just like Rihanna with the following three easy steps. First, start with light as air foundation for skin that looks like skin all day with Fenty's easy drop blurring skin tint. It comes in light to medium coverage. It's hydrating and gives you that soft blur finish. Second, set it off with just the right contour plus highlight with Fenty's Kilowatt Freestyle Highlighter Duo. It's cream to powder and it gives you a show-stopping shimmer. Third, protect your glow from shine anytime, any place with Fenty's Invisimat Blotting Powder. It absorbs shine and diffuses the look of pores. So what are you waiting for? Shop now Fenty Beauty by Rihanna at Ulta Beauty. Did you have any mentors that really kind of guided you through the whole process? Oh my goodness. So yes, absolutely. There's a woman that I talk about in the book quite a bit by the name of Donna Reynolds. And listen, this was a white woman. Okay. So 
it wasn't like I was looking for, you know, the color of the mentor, right? I was looking for successful women that would take me under their wing and say, I believe in you. This woman, Jessica, not only took me under her wing from a career standpoint and taught me everything HR that I know, but she sent me to school on her budget. She would sit me in her office. Um, she was my supervisor in that program. She would sit me in her office and, and sit down and say, hey, how, how are things at home? How are you and David? She would get into my world. I was struggling. I had never seen what it was like to be a mom. I was struggling, loving my three-year-old daughter who was having a hard time with me. Because you, you didn't even have a mom really. So you didn't have No, I didn't. Mom. I was struggling. I, I had the spouts of anger and I talk about it in the book, Trauma. And here's my little girl, three years old. I'm trying to mother her. I've never, I didn't raise her. So you know, I'm struggling. And Donna took me under her wing. I bought books on, you know, how to, how to have healthy relationships, started reading and just became an insatiable reader for content, you know, learning myself. So all those things led up to, you know, my ability to really transform not only my thinking, because I had gone to church to work on the heart issues, right? Forgiveness and abandonment and all the things. And I, you know, I started working with a mentor and, and Donna Reynolds was life-changing. And then I had, since then I've had um, amazing mentors, really, smart people that are highly educated people that have spent time with me, coaching me and mentoring me through my career. When you got these mentors, and I think people always figure like, how do I get a mentor? What do I do? Were these people that you sought out and reached yes. out deliberately to? and like run after them and bug them to death until they help you? You know, everybody that knows me, even my team now, there's nothing that I can't conquer. If, if I had someone describe me one time, if there's a wall in Rebecca's way, she will either figure out a way to tear it down or she'll go around it, but she's going to get around that damn wall, you know? So <laughs> it's like, it's figuring out and being relentless about your goals. and Talk about being Latino. <laughs> hey, listen, we're, and we do the Latino community. We are so relentless about, we're passionate, right? We're passionate about taking care of our familia or we're passionate about serving our husbands. I mean, what, however we're, we're passionate. So I use that passion for your benefit and take care of you. You have to love yourself. You have to take care of yourself. You have to apply yourself, whatever it takes to get people around you. And for me, it was, it was having those mentors in my life that all believed in me and helped me to achieve success. That's so important because so often we, we want, we say, Oh, I want to do it on my own. I want to do it on my own, but it's okay to get help. You should get help because how are you going to grow if you don't know the path to take? So I think it's so important. And I think people don't realize you say you want to do it on your own, but people can open doors for you just because they're opening doors. They're seeing how hard you're working in order to say, here, let me open this door for you. But you're the one who truly has to go through it and prove yourself and, and make that journey. Nobody ever hand, Nobody's unless you're talking about nepotism, but in our case, nobody's handing us anything. We're working for everything that we have. You obviously suffered a lot of mental, emotional, physical abuse, and still you were even while making these changes in your life. Mm -hmm. How do you feel all of that affected you being actually able to change and even the trajectory that it was either hindering or helping your professional path? Well, I'll tell you, I just, I just uh, did a talk on mental health and um, with a, a, a podcast owner who specifically talks about the trauma and dealing with, because so many of Americans now are dealing with mental health issues, whether it's being bipolar, whether it's depression or whether it's fear and, and constantly being gripped by fear and movement forward, of course, schizophrenia, the traditional mental health issues. I actually am a firm believer in counseling. And do you know, Jessica, that 
that only 9% of the Latino community pursues psychological help for a trauma issue. 9%. I absolutely believe it. I, we, I don't think it's right. And I still, I mean, I've gone before. I do need, think I need to go again. Yeah. But, I'm a big believer in that. And we, we are, we are killing ourselves and our potential by not pursuing help by not sitting down with somebody, whether it's your church pastor or your, or your counselor or someone that has walked a journey to say, Hey, listen, I'm struggling. I'm fearful. And I, I have this deal with unforgiveness, or I feel this hate in my heart against this person. I don't know how to deal with it. You know, when you talk through those issues, I did every single issue I encountered in my life. I talked through with counselors and with, with pastor mentors, People of faith that that I trust, I learned to trust because people of faith abuse me. So you got to learn to trust other people that are good people and say, hey, listen, can you help me? I'm really struggling with this. And, and I keep repeating this behavior. And I'm pretty sure it's because I have hate in my heart or I'm pretty sure it's because I'm I'm holding unforgiveness or from a mental standpoint, I have fear because I feel like I'm going to fail, you know. You've got to talk through that. And there's so many things right now available online. So Jessica, I'm a big fan of a woman by the name of Dr. Caroline Leaf. She is a renowned neuroscientist. You can Google her. Her YouTubes have several million followers. She has books. Leaf like L-E-A-F? L-E-A-F, Dr. Caroline Leaf. I've studied a lot of her work the last 10 years. She's brilliant when it comes to dealing with toxic thinking and her teachings deal with scientific neurological effect of the negativity of trauma that affects your physical body and then your, your behavior. And I, I listen to her podcasts on a weekly basis. I'll turn her, she has one called Think, Learn, Succeed. And I'll, I'll listen to her podcast. And guess what? She provides all these tools. So people think, oh, I can't afford $100 an hour counselor. There's so much content, free content available to us people that are doing TED Talks and podcasts. And I'm just a content guru. I love to listen to healthy, life-giving podcasts that provide tools. And Dr. Leaf is a big, she's my mentor and she doesn't even know it. She's got millions of followers and I follow her and listen to her stuff. So, you, you know, you've got to start somewhere in, in, yeah. the, in terms of getting help. I'm going to kind of go back to something that you had said in regards to being abused and having to trust people. When you started your relationship with your now husband of 32 years, you started as friends and he was, he is 10 years older than you. And I know that you go into a lot of the stuff talking about, there's a lot of people that really took advantage of you when you yes. were younger. How did you know that this person was different? Because I think when you have that trauma, people hold on to it and then think I can never trust anybody again. Or when they feel something feel vulnerable or feel something that's more than a friendship or whatever, they get scared and turn away. How did you know that he was different and he wasn't going to take advantage of you like you had previously been taken advantage of? Well, the first thing is we were best friends for almost two years. I had a friendship with him long before I got engaged. I got to know him. We would sit and talk in his car. I didn't have a car. So he would take me sometimes home after church. Cause I, when I moved back in with my mom, when I started rehab and moved back in with my mom to get help, I left my own apartment. Cause I didn't want to be in a place where I was alone. I wanted to be around people and he would take me home and we would talk for hours. And he's a former um, Coke addict and um, had, because he's older, he, he rehabbed five years before I did. And um, he was doing a lot of work with inner city gangs in the Austin police department in terms of working with the, the boys 
And he's just an amazing leader. And, you know, we would talk for hours and talk. We're not talking. He never even as much as held my hand. That's how respectful he was. But he knew that I was struggling and he didn't want to take advantage of the situation. He also didn't want to go into a relationship, even though he liked me. He didn't want to go into a relationship with somebody who was going to be problematic long term because he knew that I was raw and I was hurting. So he gave me that space and we became friends. I always say, you know, your relationship with your significant other should be based on friendship. Long before there's any physical affection or anything else, it should be friendship. We have faith in common. We both love God. We have community in common. We both worked serving in the community. And now we do community work with our nonprofit. And we had our goals. He's a visionary. And so, you know, that's that started the path for me trusting him. Then when he when then we asked me to date him after year two, um, we got we actually got married in less than six months because we we were already friends and we knew we were life partners. And you know, he was a big strength to me. And I talk about some of the hairy moments in our early in our marriage in our book that we went through, but we, we weathered it and, you know, got a lot of counseling together because he had an anger problem. I had an emotional trauma problem and bringing the two together with those things were a little hairy, but we got a lot of help. And he was a big part of that. Oh yeah. That could, I mean, that definitely sounds like it could be a very hairy situation. And we're both passionate (laughs) Latinos. So it's like, (laughs) you know, we're, we're passionate in the good. And then when we fight, we like to fight. So, you know, we have to learn how to navigate that. And I'm, you know, and it makes me very happy that he was your your biggest cheerleader in regards to the growth and the work that you were doing. And you talk about your opportunity to serve and you like how you started in this welfare to work program, how you worked really hard and you kept applying and you were going to school. You were a wife, a mother, a student and worked full time. Yeah. What kind of toll did that take on your family to be able to do all of those things? Because obviously I don't think there's any such thing as just balancing it all. Right. So what kind of toll did that take going through all of that? And how did your husband support you during that time to be able to do those things? Yeah. I'll tell you early on, um, it was tough, but when it got tougher in the second phase of our marriage was, was after we both moved back from DC in 2005 and I started traveling in consulting back and forth between Austin and DC with a consulting practice. My kids were, my daughter was 19. So she was older now, but my son was in fifth, in fifth grade. And, you know, David, we were a team. We were doing the nonprofit work. He was running that. And that was, we were investing his time. I was starting the consulting work and traveling to DC every 10 days. And, you know, it was, it was rough for 15 years. I did that commute. And he was with me every step of the way. We say he held the front down, the home front down. But, you know, when you're in partnership with with a soulmate, um, with your marriage, your partner, your significant other, whoever it is that you go into, into, into lifelong partnership with, it has to be a team effort. And a lot of couples come together and, and they're not on the same page with the goals. We've always been on the same page with our goals, with our vision and with supporting each other. That's why we've been successful, because when I wasn't home and I was traveling, doing my consulting work, when the kids were young, he was home. And then when he was you know, traveling, doing the nonprofit work, I would be home. We would have to give and take. Right. And we also and this is something that's rare in the Latino community. Our responsibilities at home were 50 50. Listen, we're both working parents. You got to wash the dishes. I'm sorry. If I'm going to cook, you're going to do the dishes. So he's he's my kitchen cleaner. <laughs> I'm a cook and I have my show called RC Cocina, which is on my website. I make a mess. I blow up the kitchen. I'm a really good cook, but he cleans it all. And that's our deal. I cook, you clean, right? So yeah. you have to have that partnership. Were there ever moments where you didn't think, 
I feel like everybody hits a wall, right? But was there ever a moment where you thought, oh my gosh, are we going to make it through this? Oh my gosh. Like every three to four to five years, we've hit, <laughs> we've hit a wall. We've hit a brick wall. We've hit a cement wall. We've hit a wood wall. I mean, you name it. So I would say you're 20. We went through a really rough, rough time. I was traveling a lot with the practice and he was working with several thousand kids in the inner city and our son was still in school. So we were trying to, you know, navigate all the, cause we were working with some of the hardest kids in East Austin that, you know, struggle with truancy issues. And so he would bring all that home. And then I was gone a week at a time and, you know, it was rough, but you know what, we, what we did, Jessica, we went to counseling and we go to counseling. We have a counselor. We see once a month, even today, 32 years later, we sit and we talk about our communication, you know, what, what's going on in our marriage and our life. We talked to someone when we hit that brick wall. We made a commitment when we got married. We made a commitment that that we would stick it out. And no matter what, we were going to work through it and respect each other for it. And I know that's not always the case with families, but for ours, our, that was our stake in the ground. And, and we still get counseling. I mean, we still fight. We had a fight a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, you need to go back to counseling. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he's like, you need to go to counseling. And I'm like, how about we both go to counseling? And that's where the difference maker is, is we both say, okay, we need to get our stuff together and get help because we can be a help to anybody if we're not healthy. So our goal is always strong health in our marriage. What you said is right on. And, and just knowing that not everything is going to be perfect. And when it is, you have, you have a tool and knowing what those tools are and how to use those tools. I want to kind of now kind of go back to your profession. That's what we do here, you know, kind of go back and forth. Yeah, forever. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually you get to the director of human resources for the state treasury department, the Texas uh, state Gov treasury Governor department. Bush for Governor Bush. Yeah. So under that moniker, when you get to that point, do you, and this is an, prior to you even going to the White House, does it become a political job at that point? Or is it just you're still just doing the service that you were always doing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I was not a political hire. There are political people that go on campaigns and get hired because they've worked a campaign. I've never worked a campaign in my life. I worked for two Democrats and two Republicans. Um, Ann was my first Democrat boss and Bush was my last Republican boss. But I'll say that when, when I was at the state level, I, I was apolitical and I was looked at for my skill and my talent. One of the things I admired about Governor Bush and then President Bush, which is why I went to work for him in the White House, I've never seen anybody support nonpartisan people like he had. I mean, he, he worked very strong with Democrats here in Texas. As a matter of fact, one of his best friends was Bob Bullock, who was an iconic Democrat in, in, the, in the state house. He valued people for their, their expertise and their position and their opinion. He wasn't looking for just people party aligned with him. He looked at the individual's contributions. And so my, my job became a little more political when he asked me to join the, the White House team and I went and became a White House official. Um, then I started doing more events for him and being a surrogate. I was one of the top Latinas in the administration at the time doing a lot of political events for him. But, but even then, um, I have never seen myself as a political person. I'm apolitical. And I've been respected for that, in my opinion. And because I've had bosses that, that don't care about that. Now, I won't say all political officials are like that, right? I kinda, right. I'm, I'm kind of an anomaly, if you would say. Most of the people that I worked with in my career are very political. But I've really tried to make sure my, listen, my message is community and its impact. And you can't be political and 
also uh, be community and focus because if you're tied with the title or an R or a D or an I, whatever that title is, you can't, I don't believe you can have maximum impact. And I think that's wrong. That's what's wrong today in America is we look at everything through a political lens. And if we would just come together and agree on the things we agree on, we would be in a much better position. But we fight over what we don't agree on. And there's so much more that we agree agree on, specifically in the Latino community. Oh, yeah. And I, I think a lot of people just focus on one or two issues that no, it's this way or, or no way at all. So I completely agree. What was your first thought when George H.W. Bush, let's make sure we're clear on which Bush. George W. Bush, yeah. Or, or was the first his, da- his dad was H. So he's okay. He's George, George W. Bush. Bush. Okay. I couldn't remember. Thank you yeah. for clarifying. Mm-hmm. Keep me honest. Keep me honest. <laughs> so George W. Bush, when he wins the presidency and goes and he's trying to find out who of his staff would be willing to go. He knew your name and he asked yeah. if you would go. Yeah. What was your first thought when you found out he wanted to know if you were willing to move to D.C. and go to the White House? I was blown away. I, you know, I, I've struggled with insecurity my whole life because of my lack of formal education and how I grew up. And I had to overcome that. When he when I found out he asked about, will Rebecca go? I was floored. I was like, I literally it's one of those things where you look back and you think, um, are you talking to me? <laughs> But um, I was honored, obviously, uh, and my husband also got to serve in the Bush administration. Um, he knows David as well. And, you know, Jessica, it's really it's really important to to I recently talked to a women's group and I was and they were asking, you know, what was it that made you different? Right. What was it that caught his eye? I will tell you that that the uh, President Bush was always about people doing the right thing and being loyal for the cause of what he stood for. And I have always admired his resolve and his leadership. And I have been very loyal. Um, Not that I've agreed with every position he's taken, but I've known how to take my personal opinion, tuck it aside and do the right thing by the administration because I was working for him. Right. So, you know, and same thing with an employer. You work for another employer. You're not going to go behind that employer's back and be talking about how you don't agree with them because of this and that. I've always been a good soldier in terms of doing the right thing. And if I didn't align, then I need to go get another job because I need to show loyalty. And I think the loyalty and the commitment and also just doing the good work. He really felt strongly. He he recently wrote me a personal note. Somebody gave him my book, by the way. I did not give it to him. I don't have access to him. But he sent me a personal note, handwritten in the mail, saying he read Lost Girl and what the tremendous impact it had on him. And his the way he left it was, I didn't, I knew you had been through a lot of stuff, but I didn't realize the depths of your trauma and pain. And he, he said, I'm proud to know you. This is a man who used to be the president and he cares about sending me a personal note about my book. That's the kind of person I work for. And that's why that's why I stuck with him for 12 years, because I felt that loyalty. And I think he saw that loyalty. Speaking of the things you've gone through and going through and, and going through this tremendous experience, I would imagine that there was a lot of imposter syndrome that went through. And maybe you didn't know what it was called then. Yeah. Right. But when you, we know what it's called now. Yeah. How did you get, because I I actually do work in politics now. <laughs> I work oh, for a local you. council member here oh, in San Diego. And I even now, like how many years into my career have moments of, oh my gosh, am I good enough? I can't, I've no. never worked in politics before. Like, why did they hire me? But I I feel like I've gone through that with every phase. How, especially in something when you become a special advisor, <laughs> which is where you ascended to, Right. You let's remind people you started working at a welfare to work program and you end up 
a special advisor to the president of the United States working at the White House. I would imagine there's a tremendous amount of imposter syndrome. Oh, listen. <laughs> going, it's making, making your way up through the ranks. What did you do to overcome? Because I think pe- we all go through that. We all have our different ways of yeah. getting through that. How, what was your way of getting through those? Well, those and, and your, your readers have to get, or your listeners have to get my book. There's a whole chapter dedicated to my first experience in the Oval Office and the trauma that I went through sitting there thinking like I was going to die because, you know, they were coming around to me and I was insecure and I knew my background and I, did, I was the only one in there without Everybody had a master's at minimum PhDs. And here I am with a GED, you know, but you know what, uh, Jessica, it goes back to those mentors and those people that I relied on when I felt insecure, I would voice it. I, I would talk to my husband, I'm, babe, I'm really struggling. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel overwhelmed. And he's like, no, you got this. Like, you know, um, in so many words, get your shit together. Like, you know, recalibrate your brain. <laughs> Do whatever you have to do to get yourself. For me, it's been about really pressing into my faith and and reading devotionals that encourage who I am and not who I'm not, because Mm -hmm. I think so much of our, our, our confidence comes from within and what we believe about ourselves and not trying to be someone we're not. And so when I started believing, hey, I've worked really hard to be here and I am confident and I do have this. And you know what? I may not know everything, but I'm a hard worker and I'll figure it out. And then and then calling on those mentors, my mentor in the White House. And I tell the story when I hit a brick wall with my job um, and I started everything started hitting the fan. I went to him and I said, I'm really struggling. I need your help. And he helped me. He's like, OK, well, let's talk through you know, what's the issue you're struggling with? And for me, it was about knowing the political players. I didn't know any of them and they were all pissed off because I didn't know who they were. And I was not taking their phone calls. I'm like, well, I don't know who that person is, you know? And I remember he said to me, the president Bush didn't pick you because you know, all the political players, he picked you because you know, personnel and you know how to hire for him. And that's what you need to do. And that was like, okay, I can do that, you know? But that imposter syndrome will sneak up on you. It still sneaks up on me. You just got to squash it back down and say, no, 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 no. I I know what the hell I'm doing. I'm qualified. Like, if not, I'm going to go figure it out and ask someone to help me. But you've, you've got to keep it under under wraps because it, do, it can overwhelm you, uh, especially if you don't have the credentials and you feel like in your case, you know, you've never been in politics and now you're on the city council. Well, guess what? You've probably got some great people around you that can help you navigate the city council. So it's asking for help and being open to learn. That's totally the key is being open to learn. The first time I'm hearing these acronyms, I'm, I feel like I, my eyes probably glazed over yeah. and I'm like, what? So in the, every meeting I'd be like, I'm sorry, what does this acronym mean? And I would write <laughs> everything down. And the first time I said an acronym or when I wrote it down and I wrote the whole thing down without asking somebody, it was such a proud moment. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yes. I know what that stands. I know what ED and IR stands for. That's right. Yeah. And you probably studied a lot. I had to study a lot and read a lot. And I had these huge, thick policy books. I had to listen. I made recommendations to the president for the bioethics commission, which advises the president on human cloning. Oh, wow. And I, and listen, I failed science in high school. See, so guys, that, no matter what you could do, like you were you leaning into your it. strengths, you were leaning you into learn your it. strengths. It, you can learn it. And, you know, you and, and for me, it's about getting smart people around me. So all of my deputies and my my staff were all very degreed and very credentialed yeah. because when I didn't know something, I'd go to them and say, how would you approach it? So it's 
It's not being so prideful to think that, hey, you've arrived and you know everything and surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. They're going to make you look really good if you hire good people. Yes. You actually include several photos documenting your life's journey from even when your mom, the times when your mom was going through drugs and you literally say like when she's doing drugs, when she was dancing, like all of these different things. Why was it important for you to put these photos in your book? And what do you, when you look through them, what does that make you feel when you look through these photos? And and why did you feel like they were so important to be in the book? So I think picture says a thousand words. And sometimes in order to believe it, you got to see the picture. And my publisher said, you know, it's going to be a lot more expensive to put all these photos in your book. I'm like, I need them in there because I need people to see the journey. So they, when they read about my mom, they see my mom and they're like, oh my God, yes, that's when she was, you know, in pictures say a thousand words. The other reason I love pictures and I still have, my mom passed away. We actually be, uh, reconciled in my twenties and she was just, you know, a great, great help with my daughter um, and helped me. And, you know, she struggled with a lot of mental illness later in her life with depression. And I always say she died of depression, not cancer, because she didn't have the fight, the fight in her to fight the cancer. But I love my mama. And, and we, we came together and, you know, I loved her where she was and she knew I was going to tell my story and I would tell her mama, no shame. Hey, listen, I'm okay. Like I turned out okay. And you tried really hard, but she didn't have the tools, you know, and when you're an addict, you, you just don't have the ability to snap your finger to change it. But I think pictures are important because they, they remind me of where I came from. And I never, Jessica, I never want to forget where I came from. I never want to come to this Eiffel tower to think, Oh gosh, I'm the best thing since sliced bread. And now I'm so successful. And I always want to remember where I came from. So those pictures help remind me where I came from, but they also help keep me in a place of understanding the power behind my transformation and seeing that transformation in the pictures is really important for the reader. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I always think that pictures are powerful. Words are powerful, but when you add the pictures into them, I was literally just scrolling through them very slowly. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh. And just like I said, even though I didn't read every word of the book, I went through a lot of the things where I could correlate the pictures with the times in the book. Obviously once the president's time, time in office ends, there's, you know, a finite time when you're working in the white house and you, you know, you're working with a nonprofit, you decide you want to do your own thing. And you eventually start your own HR IT consulting firm, Avant Garde LLC. Mm-hmm. How do you think your path growing up and your time in the White House has given, what do you think it's given you in terms of being an entrepreneur? So um, I'll never forget, I was a government employee my whole career, 15 years. And when I decided to branch out and, and become one of the fastest growing demographic Latina entrepreneurs in America, here in Texas, we're number one. I decided, you know what, I want to be an entrepreneur. And so I, I met with my mentor who, who is an MIT Yale grad. He also came out of private sector. And I and I said to him, I want to start a business, but I don't quite know if I have what it takes. And he, he said to me, he said, Rebecca, you have resolve, you have tenacity, you're a risk taker, you know how to get the right people around you. He said, all these skills that you've developed as a government leader, use all of those to start your business because it's the same, it's the translation of the same grit. Right. And so I got got a partner um, who had been in business before and partnered with him. He's he's on my team. 
you know, I got around the right people and started asking lots of questions. I took a class at ACC on, on business one-on-one, you know, I started just learning and I made a lot of mistakes in my business along the way. We're, we're, we're year 11 this year. And like I said, we've got about a hundred consultants across about five or six different States and we're growing, but you know what? I've made mistakes. And when I make a mistake, it's okay. I don't dwell on it. I say, okay, how can we learn from it? Let's move forward. Um, and then learn more, but being an entrepreneur is so empowering. You could not pay me to go back to work for anybody. It's just so empowering. I want to kind of go back to what you said, because I think this is so important. You have really worked all of these things. You've worked in the White House. And when you decided to start your own business, you decided to take a business 101 course at Austin Community College. Mm -hmm. You didn't think you were too big to go back, even though all you've done all of these things you were like, these are the things that I don't know. And I'm going to go to community college to learn this. I want to focus on that. I just want to focus on the fact that you said that, because I think sometimes we think, oh, I can't go back or, oh, it's too much or, oh, I've done all this. I should already know. I love that you did that. And yeah. I just, and, and just to, to clarify, it wasn't, awesome. it wasn't, it wasn't a course at ACC. It was, it was through an incubator. The chamber of commerce offers these incubator classes oh, that yeah. are at ACC. And then they're, they're kind of crash courses in business, but they're free because they're grant, they're grant programs. So we had a friend who had, was a, was a, a leader at the chamber and, and, you know, he, my husband and I, you know, he said, Hey, you guys ought to take a course, you know, on the incubator. The point that I'm making is whatever it takes for you to learn the knowledge that you need, you can do that. And now with the online courses that are available to you, most of them are free. The sky is the limit for anything you want to achieve. Where do you want to see avant-garde go in the next? I mean, I hate saying in the next five years, but just in the future, what is your vision for avant-garde? So we're, we're on a growth trajectory. Um, uh, I'd like to grow this business to $30 million a year in revenue. At that point, we won't be a small business anymore. But, um, you know, I, I'm telling my story. I'm empowering women. I'm you know, we're doing the right things. Our motto at Avantgarde is people first, client always. So we are a human, a human capital HR firm, and we basically offer um, people solutions to organizations. And so, you know, we we have a 90% rate of, of clients coming back asking us to do more because we're trusted. And we've moved from that consulting firm to that trusted advisor position, which for a consultant is golden. And it's all through our relationships and the network. It's really, really, I've taken my relationship concept that I talked about early on in your podcast and I've applied it to business. And it really works. People want to do business with people that they enjoy doing relationship with. I mean, you spend so much time with the people that you work with. Of course, you want to enjoy it. I think more and more people are are realizing that, right? In in this, this shift that has happened. And that's why so many people maybe have not gone back because they're like, I wasn't happy. I don't want to be somewhere I'm not happy anymore. Mm-hmm. So I have two final questions before I have you give your website and everything like that. First, what is the legacy you want to leave? And then second, what do you hope your kids remember of you more than anything else? So my legacy is connected to our community at impact work. We have literally thousands of kids we've worked with, mostly Latino inner city kids that are out of Title I schools, that struggle, that are on, you know, food stamps and programs, and they're struggling. They're, you know, they're, they're single parent homes. They're dealing with the community ills that, you know, they go to school and they're having a hard time learning. So we, through our nonprofit, we've worked with thousands of kids in, in the East Austin area. We just launched here a uh, Women Empower Girls in Legacy program around Women's History Month. And that the whole month of March is all about Women Empower Girls of Legacy. 
And we're, we're taking in seven girls, Latina girls, high school girls, and we're helping provide scholarships for them for their education. Listen, I always say, if it doesn't involve impact, don't sign me up. I want to make a difference. I have been given a lot. I've been blessed by God in more ways than I can imagine. Shame on me if I have all this success and I just go and buy a bunch of cars and big houses and, you know, ha- have it for myself. I want to be able to say, I gave back and I paid it forward and I made a difference in this life. And then secondly, my kids, I have um, an adult daughter now who's 34, two grandbabies, my son who's 28 and he's a music producer in LA. And then my niece who we adopted, her and her son are part of our family. We we quasi adopted them, not legally, but she's in her thirties too. We took her in when she was 17 and headed down a, a bad path and she's, her whole life's been changed. So, you know, my kids and my grandkids are true legacy and watching them thrive and succeed and being able to be mom and dad to them and give them something I never had, my husband never had. It's just, it's the icing on the cake for me. It's the most important thing I've ever done in my life is be a mom to those babies. That's so lovely. Actually, do you want to give the name of the nonprofit as well? Yeah, so so um, actually, our nonprofit is called Launchpad, um, and it's here in Austin. And we uh, we've transitioned to more of a kind of funding mechanism. We're doing the scholarship program, and my husband and I just invested the first twenty five thousand, and we're doing a matching program for another twenty five to get these kids through um, through education. But um, my website uh, where they can learn about what I'm doing and all about Lost Girl is RebeccaContreras.com. And I encourage your readers to actually order my book off the website, because if they do, I'll give them a discount and then I'll personalize it to them. If they can get it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble too, but um, the website has a lot more information and we're just wanting to get the story out. It's just important for our community to know they're not alone and uh, where they are today is not where they need to be tomorrow. And we hold the most important seat in America. We're the fastest growing demographic in America, yet we don't have a viable voice in every sector of the community. And and I, my husband and I want to change that, Jessica. Like we're like a a, a megaphone (laughs) saying to the Hispanic community, hey, get your stuff together, you know, get yourself educated and put your seat at the table. I'm proud of you for running for office, run for office, serve on your school board, you know, get out there and get to the table. Yeah. I do not run for office. I work for a council member. So I do all the community, like, community outreach and communications. Yeah. yeah. Rebecca, how can people reach you social media wise? Yeah. So I am at, um, at Instagram at Rebecca and Contreras. Make sure you use the and word, my middle name, uh, Rebecca and Contreras on Instagram and Facebook and also LinkedIn. Um, and all the, all the hashtags are on my website too. So the best way is to go to RebeccaContreras.com and then there's QR codes to connect with me, but I'd love to hear from your listeners. If my story encouraged you, you know, once you read the book, if you love the book and Tell me what it's what it does, you know, for for you in terms of your thought process. Because I love hearing those stories. We've gotten great reviews already from how it's really caused people to think different mm-hmm. about their life. So I'd love to hear from you and connect with you um, online as well. Yeah, absolutely. And all of the links will be on the show notes as well, so people can go to the website as well as social media from the show notes. Rebecca, thank you so much. Like I said, I'm going to actually go back and read the (laughs) things that I skipped over because I feel like I went through like, I don't even want to say the juiciest parts because the whole dang book is juicy, right? (laughs) There's so much to go through. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, but thank you so much for sharing your story and for coming on and, and sharing with our listeners as well because, you know, all of our voices are important. We all have different journeys and 
just because my journey doesn't look like yours doesn't necessarily mean that I can't take something from that. But then there's going to be other people who do have a very similar journey. And by seeing you, by seeing another Latina who has been able to do this without a college education, let's just say that as well. And I know it's different. It can be different and it can be hard, but it can be done. It can be done. Yes. And I think that's very, very important to remind people. At the same time, Jessica, we want our kids to stay in school. Hey, listen, this is why we're scholarshiping these kids. Graduate from high school, go to school. If it's a vocational trade, if it's college, whatever you do, get yourself some education of some sort. You know, it's important for our next generation of Latino leaders to have that position of knowledge. Yeah, and people forget like vocational schools, plumbers make a lot of money, electricians make a lot of money. Like chefs, chefs, oh my God. Yeah. Six figures. You don't have to be, I mean, everybody's path is different, right? Some kids, you know, going to traditional college is not for them, but they can go become a plumber or electrician or a welder or anything and problem and make way more money than they probably would ever dream. And it's something that they like to do. So we, we have to remember that we need to be able to push and open avenues for all education, not just four-year colleges. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. And David and I both are big proponents of, uh, of additional training and education outside of the traditional degree program. But thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And um, Godspeed to all you're doing as well. Thank you for providing a voice for our community. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And and everybody, guys, go check her out, order the book, do all of the things. And until next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.